The way in which we operate is defined, in large part, by our memories. Memory is a core component of the human identity. In this show, we hope to explore the nuances of this fundamental aspect of our brains. These conversations aim to illustrate the strengths, weaknesses, and mysteries surrounding remembering and forgetting. I'm Tanner Chalet. And I'm Isabel Nieves. And this is Remembering and Forgetting, a podcast by Themester. It may be hard for many of us to admit it, but it's undeniable. The morbid and the macabre fascinate us. If not, Egyptian mummies in the ruins of Pompeii would not occupy such a space in our understandings of history. It is because of the death within these spaces and others, and not in spite of it, that we find ourselves revisiting them again and again. Professor Robert Dobler is no stranger to this concept. He's done a variety of research on this fascinating topic called dark tourism. In addition to the presence and significance of shrines and memorials in all their diverse forms. It turns out that the ways in which we grieve and commemorate on both personal and institutional levels can inform quite a lot about our culture. I sat down to talk with him about his work and his upcoming course on these very topics. I'm sitting here in the studio with Robert Dobler, who is a professor of folklore here at IU, correct? Yes. Professor of folklore. And we're going to have a conversation about the existence of shrines and altars and memorials around the world, but specifically in American culture. And one thing I want to ask is, it kind of seems like a lot of the times when you talk about things like shrines and altars, people assume it's kind of like an Indiana Jones type of archaeological thing where it's either far in the past or in very different foreign cultures. But would you describe the existence of shrines and memorials ubiquitous across the world, especially in America as well? I think very much so, yeah. Um, one of the first things I do in my classes is I, I start to question the students, okay, when, when I say the word shrine what do you think of? Where do you encounter shrines? And usually if they start to think more and more, they'll start to say, you know, maybe some exotic things. And then they'll mm-hmm. say, well, shrines, altars I associate with with church, with synagogue, with places like this. Mm-hmm. And um, we're very much trying to move into, because this is a folklore class, all of the, the sort of big um, official practices yeah. matter, but we're really interested in the, the sort of day-to-day mundane Mm -hmm. interactions that people have. So um, we very quickly start to talk about shrine as simply a point of communion between Mm -hmm. the living and the dead. Or, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the dead, the spiritual, the otherworldly, the the divine. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, for the purposes of this class, it's it's the dead. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of as if any physical form of memory or keeping memory or memorialization can be considered a shrine. And that's, I don't think a lot of people think of it that way. Right. Um, I, I think many more people have shrines than probably think about it. It mm-hmm. could be as simple as uh, an envelope where you've kept every birthday card from a grandparent, um, something that you can go back to and, and your closeness to it um, evokes your closeness to that person. Yeah. Um, we're very much and, – and again, I do think this is pretty ubiquitous, but mm-hmm. I think it's especially uh, – drawn out, especially emphasized in, in American culture, yeah. um, this this preoccupation with things, mm-hmm. how we use material objects to to help our memory, to, to enhance our memory, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that somebody else touched, your, your grandmother's hand as she wrote a letter to you, um, 
it gives it that much more emotional value to you as a way of keeping the dead present. Mm -hmm. And definitely it does, it seems like it ranges from those small heirlooms and objects to the bigger ones when you think of, you know, pyramids or mm -hmm. maybe like the Mayan temples and stuff. Um, and that kind of drives this area of dark tourism, which I know is a focus of your class in the fall. Could you define dark tourism and then maybe talk about what interests you about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> as with any academic term, yeah. um, you're going to find a bunch of different definitions, yeah. a bunch of debates about it. But mm -hmm. um, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's uh, tourism you know, simply going to a location that is associated in some way with death, disaster, or atrocity. Mm -hmm. That could range from going to visit a battlefield to uh, going to see, say, the, the uh, September 11th memorial in New York City. Um, it could be going to uh, the house where John Wayne Gacy buried his victims, mm -hmm. right? Um, there are all sorts of different kinds of things. It could be going to uh, a wax museum in right. uh, Salem, Massachusetts, right? Um, so there are many, many layers and levels to it. Uh, but at heart, uh, and the reason this is connected in, in my mind, in my class, to mm -hmm. memorials, to altars, is these are all ways that we have in, in contemporary times, in contemporary America, of uh, trying to get something of death back. It's something that we don't typically experience uh, in a, in a firsthand way. Mm -hmm. um, so we seem to be on a folk level, on an everyday level, developing all sorts of practices, whether it's um, behaviors, going to tour places. Ghost tourism is probably the biggest mm -hmm. form of dark tourism right now. Right. If you've ever gone to a haunted house, uh, you know, outside of an amusement park uh -huh. maybe, um, you've engaged in dark tourism. These are ways of, of bringing something of the mystery of death back to us without uh, putting ourselves in, hopefully, in any kind of danger. Right. And if you go to New Orleans, that, that kind of mm -hmm. drives probably around half of the tourism in New Orleans because it is known as kind of a ghost town. And it's an interesting dichotomy between people being afraid of death, especially in America. We're kind of a death shy culture. Um, things like funerals, the bodies are embalmed. They don't really resemble the way they did in life. And if you go into different cultures, like perhaps the Mexican culture and the tradition of Day of the Dead, it's less behind closed doors. It's more of an open conversation. And would you describe events like Day of the Dead in places like Mexico? Is that more of a joyful and more of an open tradition than maybe death is treated in America? It seems to be much more. Um, celebratory is often the, the word that is used. And, and the United States especially is, mm. is often uh, called a death-denying culture. Yes. I mean, yes. we, we, people die in hospitals, in mm -hmm. hospice, um, away from home. Presented again, as you said, embalmed almost as objects ready mm -hmm. to to be examined one last time. Um, there's less focus uh, in many ways on death as a physical process in many other cultures and in things like Day of the Dead, uh, much more focus on the return mm -hmm. uh, of of the dead mm -hmm. through memory, through the associations, right? People will leave out offerings, um, foods, very uh, sensory things, things that are reminiscent of what the dead was like mm -hmm. as they were alive rather than uh, some of our more um, Americanized customs of going yes. to to graveyards, things like this, remembering the dead as dead. Yeah. Um, with something like the Day of the Dead, you remember the dead as living, vital components of our lives. Mm. Um, there's often a push, too, in, in American culture. And, and again, when I say American culture, that's <laughs> largely uh, white, middle-class, Protestant culture. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's very much more diverse than that. But yeah. there seems to be a tendency to uh, to look at grief, to look at death as something that we get through. We do the work of mourning and then we put it past us. Whereas in other cultures, we tend to think of death as 
just another part of life, something mm-hmm. that is always with us. You don't have to forget. You don't have to move on. You can keep the person with you, mm-hmm. um, which is actually what many of us do anyway. Yeah. We just feel guilty or, or um, morbid or yeah. uh, it becomes pathologized uh-huh. in a culture where we're not allowed to talk about it, where it's not as celebrated, where we don't necessarily set aside time where we can say, oh, what did you do last night? I spent the night in the cemetery right, yeah. um, next to my loved ones. Yeah. It's not really a point of conversation like, like you, as you said, in Protestant middle class white America. Um, and it seems like those graves and cemeteries are kind of considered the official way to grieve, mm-hmm. the correct way to grieve. However, there are always more informal ways to grieve. Um, one thing that really fascinated me when reading about your class was roadside shrines for car accident victims or you know people who died on the road. And you don't, again, you don't typically think of that as a shrine, but it is because it exists as a way to keep that memory of that person alive in the place where they died. Right, yeah. right. So we often call them uh, spontaneous shrines. Uh-huh. And so there's there's uh, a little bit of a performative aspect to it also. Um, when we think about roadside crosses, the sort of white um, cross put mm-hmm. at the side of the road where, where uh, vehicular death has occurred, um, it has many functions. One of these is to, uh, to make the site of tragedy more beautiful, mm-hmm. right? People place flowers, um, become very, very pretty, very, very heartfelt um, spaces that sort of cleanse the, the uh, atrocity mm-hmm. from the place. Uh, but they also serve as warnings, right? Um, this sort of dual purpose. It's addressing something. So if you are driving and you're going around a corner, a, a sharp turn, and yeah. you see three or four roadside crosses, you're going to notice and you're probably going to slow down. Um, <laughs> it's, it's It's a way of saying, yeah. hey, look, something happened here that should not have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so that because it's public and because it's often uh, anonymously put up, um, it speaks in this way. It affects change or it attempts to affect change. So that's something that we often look at. Um, and that's a very public one. Yeah. Um, and it's very much related to, uh, I think, what you were saying mm-hmm. about uh, sort of distancing ourselves from death. Um, we see these sort of solid, uh, formal, uh, and, and very much um, one-size-fits-all funeral mm-hmm. arrangements, cemeteries, um, the things that we expect to see. Uh, on the other hand, we are doing very much more personal uh sometimes private, sometimes public things. So I, I, we look a lot at those sorts of shrines. Um, again, shrines because they're sort of communions to mm-hmm. the flowers, the things that people leave there. Um, often people leave notes, signatures. Yeah. It's ways of talking to the dead again. Um, I, I consider on that same spectrum uh, memorial tattoos or something that I've been looking into more and more. Yeah. Um, where you have a lot of control over the public or the private aspect of your grief, of your mourning. Uh, and again, it's strange to think of a shrine or an altar as something uh, not tangible, not something that you built. I yeah. mean, it is tangible, but it's in the skin, mm-hmm. right? It's a part of the body. You carry it with you. Right. Yeah. That is very interesting because you see memorial memorials in tattoos. And there's I, – I don't know if this is true for everyone, but there is sort of a connotation to that as maybe existing in certain cultures. Like, I, I don't know, for example, a biker culture where tattoos are a big part of – the way that you live and express yourself, that is what you might expect from someone who has that on their body. But at the same time, it is a very personal way, and in fact, a more personal way than a lot of traditional ways of grieving that people can explore. And um, are there any more informal forms of remembrance that kind of fascinate you beyond tattoos and roadside crosses and shrines? Because I just think it's very different than what we typically think of. Right, right. Well, tattoos, roadside shrines, um, uh, along the same lines, uh, I've done a little bit of work with, they're called ghost bike memorials. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and these are white bicycles that are uh, well, they're bicycles that are painted white yeah. and, and affixed to street posts, um, places where somebody has died in an accident. Um, mm. And these are uh, often markers for people that are in the cycling community, and they're used to affect um, environmental change. Yeah. They're used to affect different street laws, uh, things like that. Uh, more and more, and this is really private, it's a lot harder to, to sort of track down and, and study these things. Um, there are a lot of uses of ashes mm-hmm. of the deceased. They're called cremains um, that you can put into various shrines, yeah. um, whether it's mixing them in with uh, photographic ink and having mm-hmm. a portrait done. Uh, you could get them mixed into the ink for a tattoo. Um, sometimes cremains are, are shot into space, yeah. put into jewelry, mm-hmm. um, turned into records. That's what uh, I was that's, just reading about. That's what I was uh, thinking yeah. of, the vinyl records. Yeah. And, and with that, not only can you have um, a bit of the, the person, the cremains, um, in pressed into the vinyl, uh, you, you can have the vinyl when you play it, the record play it. Um, you could play something that was recorded of the deceased. Uh, that's that's right. a very nuanced way to you know keep someone's memory alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems more personal. And I think that as things like the internet and social media have become more popular, there are more informal and at the same time more personal ways of grief. Could you talk about maybe how social media? and the internet have changed the manners in which we grieve? Yeah, so uh, with social media websites, one of the first that I started to look at, and this dates me a little bit, was MySpace, yeah. uh, where they didn't have a lot of the privacy in place that mm-hmm. Facebook is well, still very much struggling with. Um, but you'd get uh, sites uh, that were just sort of spontaneously converted into memorials. They become shrines in and of themselves. Uh, people continue to visit them, and often the information, the pictures, um, the the likes uh, don't change. Mm. So it's sort of like um, like somebody keeping someone's room yeah. uh, exactly the way it was when they were alive. Uh, the only thing that changes are the sorts of comments that mm. accrue. And with that, we see um, a, a very big mixture of people writing intensely personal, private things, but doing it in a, in a public space, right? Posting it to somebody's uh, Facebook or MySpace when I was yeah. looking at it. Um, and we, we, you know, so you have a bunch of people writing intensely personal things and they have to know on some level that it's public, that their friends are also seeing it, but you don't see them talking to each other on it. We, we yeah. get into some really uh, interesting things there that mm-hmm. we're still trying to, to figure out. Yeah. Uh, and then, my, my students always like uh, this part of the class. We talk a little bit about um, what some of the uh, well, some of the advertising companies are starting to do with okay. this. Yeah. Uh, there was a company for a while. I'm not sure quite what happened, if mm. it's still going or not. But uh, they were saying that they had enough, um, they developed enough um, AI that they could get your personality, yeah. basically, from if you give them access to your Facebook, your mm-hmm. Instagram, your Twitter, uh, they can continue to tweet for you after you're dead. It's a very Black Mirror-esque kind <laughs> of thing. Very Black Mirror, yeah. yeah. Actually, we, we watch uh, an episode of Black Mirror yeah. uh, in my class. Yeah. It's, it's very similar to that idea. But um, the idea that we put so much of ourselves online, um, it's a question people are really starting to have to grapple with, mm-hmm. um, business, legally, and socially, uh, what happens to us online <laughs> when we die. Um, you know, we got things for a little while on Facebook where, uh, you know, Facebook would recommend something to you. It'd say, you should like Radiohead because your friends like Radiohead. This mm-hmm. person likes Radiohead. Um, but they'd be messages from, or, or some of the anniversary things. Do you remember this from five years ago? But they'll all of a sudden include um, people that have 
died. Mm. And it was very, very difficult for Facebook to know which users were dead, which users weren't. So it started a phenomenon of uh, Facebook ghosts, which could be very unsettling for people. You'd sort of forget for a moment that the person you're seeing on Facebook is no longer living because so much of our interactions take place in that virtual sphere. Mm -hmm. So learning to reckon with that um, is difficult. Yeah. And that's probably one of the things I'm most excited about in this class is obviously I'm getting older. <laughs> the students are a lot more fluent with that kind of thing, yeah. and they always have brilliant insights into what that sort of interaction is like. Um, I mean, uh, just speaking personally, when someone, a public figure who has a social media presence, when they pass, one of my first instincts, strangely enough, is to go to their social media accounts and see, you know, kind of like the record of their last words and quotes, mm -hmm. of course, because, you know, that's not the only place that they communicated. But the last thing that they put out is often poignant or even eerie. There just is this seemingly strange connection between the last post they may have made and then the event of their death. And again, it does seem pretty performative when you talk about like memorial pages on Facebook and people leaving comments. Mm -hmm. It's a more interactive and more performative way of grieving than just visiting a body in its coffin before it goes into the ground. Absolutely. And it's, it's important. Um, I mean, <laughs> to a point. It seems that it is, in many ways, a healthier way to, to think about it. Um, when somebody dies, you don't just put their memory away. You keep it. I mean, it's really, it's just building on things that we've been doing with, with um, photography for years and years and years, right? You keep photos of people you mm -hmm. love. Um, and there is this intense fascination with the moment of, the moment before. What do people think? Do you have any kind of inkling that it's going to happen? Did the person know? Were they planning something? What what would their life have been? Uh, a lot of that is exactly the kind of thing that we think about when we think about memorials, shrines, uh, dark tourism, right? It's um, all the sorts of futures that have been sort of forestalled, uh, things that could have been that aren't. But also, you know, most of us are only going to experience death firsthand once in our lives. Yeah. So there's a, a fascination. A lot of people feel sort of squeamish about it, feel um, guilty about it. Mm -hmm. But it's something that's very, very human right, yeah. to think about that moment. So um, I sometimes think about this as the difference between memorials and monuments, right? Um, if you think about all of the memorials that happened after September 11th, uh, we had spontaneous shrines mm. all over New York City, all, all over the country. Um, people, you know, putting flowers, writing notes, um, drawing pictures, writing poems, um, it just sort of this massive outpouring that just covered neighborhoods, right? Um, and then years later, we get the official monument. Monuments are often um, expressive of what happened, they, they sort of show a unity yeah. there, right? This is how the American people have responded to this. Mm -hmm. um, and we see a monument sort of rebuilding a whole people out of what had been very fragmented. Uh, the memorials, on the other hand, there's a lot more room for messiness, a lot more room for different voices, um, people angry for all sorts of different reasons, people sad, um, expressing all sorts of emotion that years later it's hard to access again. So um, there's definitely, um, and I also teach courses on legends, so I mm -hmm. can't help but think about memorials and monuments in terms of narrative that yeah. starts to get built. How do we understand death? How do we understand tragedy when it has happened, whether it's uh, somebody we love dying or a big disaster? Uh, 
And the truth is we don't. We can't in many ways. Um, memorials are often our sort of fumbling, very human ways based on uh, the values that we have, the things that our neighbors, uh, the communities that we're in, whether it's religious groups, occupational groups, um, regional groups, the things that have meaning to us. Yeah. We sort of build again from that. We sort of make meaning. Um, we look at the way a person's life impacted ours in all of these different ways. Uh, and that's very personal and very very variable, right? Yeah. Um, everybody can remember, can add their own voice, can think in different ways. As opposed to um, things that we signal as more uh, official mm -hmm. are, well, the funeral industry. Anything that you can call an industry sort of has a homogenizing effect, yeah. right? Um, less personal. Less personal. Yeah. And, and it's fine. In many ways, when something happens, we need to have an industry in place. We need something that can lead us through the steps. But we also often feel that it's not enough to capture our loss, the personal things that are becoming sort of effaced or smoothed over um, in the service of moving us through the motions, mm -hmm. right? So it's a sort of push and pull. Yeah. And, and often the folk side, especially by folklorists, gets sort of valorized. And I don't mean to do that either. I mean, there's a lot to say for for the monumental, for uh, coming together, for finding some sort of unity. Mm -hmm. But it also often... Um, sort of smooths over individual responses. Right? And it, I was going to ask if you considered things like the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Memorial, I mean, Monument, excuse me, Lincoln Monument, Washington Monument, um, forms of shrine building. And it kind of seems like in certain ways, yes, but in certain ways, no, because those effigies are positions of strength. Mm -hmm. uh, you think of the Lincoln Monument as very strong. It's a It's a portrait of how, you know, forbearing and persevering he was as a leader, whereas something more like a memorial is much more vulnerable. Right. You can think of who's controlling the narrative, yeah. right? What narrative is the Lincoln Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, I think you're right, the Lincoln Memorial, um, what is that partaking of, uh -huh. right? And we can have different opinions, different ideas about it, but only to a point, yeah. right? I mean, it sits there. It's huge. Um, it's very powerful. It's a throne. <laughs> it is, yeah. right? Um, and so it's, it's speaking um, a certain language, that has to do with nation building, mm -hmm. with, with who we are. Um, and there, of course, that who we are phrase is where the folk, I think, comes back into it also. Yeah. So I would very much call those shrines, call those memorials, um, just much more on the official level. Yeah. So, I mean, you could even think of it as crassly as where the money comes from. Yeah. Um, who funds these things is mm -hmm. often a way to think about the folk versus the the official. But yeah. um, we often think of folk as, as having a lot to do with change, with variability. Right, um, passed down traditionally. So um, roadside crosses, you know, people don't learn how to make a roadside cross. You see one, maybe a friend of yours has made one for somebody, you know, God forbid. Um, but we learn from watching other people, from seeing them, from encountering them. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, to be an undertaker, to to uh, carve tombstones, yeah. um, it's much more uh, something that you have to be instructed in. Yeah, it, and it's more... Um I don't want to say sterile, but it's it's less personal. If you see someone who works with the dead on a regular basis, they don't have the connection to the individual as the people who knew them did. Right, yeah. right. Uh, so you're teaching a class on this very topic and the broad topic we've been talking about in the fall, in the fall as part of the semester. So the course description reads, these spontaneous responses to tragedy are culturally, spiritually, and politically meaningful. They transform spaces of death into statements that demand action. Now, you've talked about, you know, how roadside crosses may warn that it's a dangerous turn on the road. 
But could you explain what that means to you in a broader sense, perhaps, uh, speaking about how these become statements and not just... Yeah, so yeah. so it comes back to narrative in some ways, too, um, and especially when we start to think about dark tourism. Um, so I grew up, and this gets to one of the earlier questions you asked me, too. Uh, mm-hmm. I grew up about 20 miles from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Um, Civil War tourism is, is all over the place there. And uh, you can literally walk down the street in a summer night, and there will be um, people in, in Civil War uniforms sort of peeking out of doorways and saying, hey, do you want to do you want to see some ghosts? <laughs> you know, they'll take you onto the battlefield and, and show you ghosts. And it starts to uh, potentially trivialize or fragment, uh, and here I'm borrowing words from uh, another folklorist on campus, Diane Goldstein. Mm-hmm. Um, it, can, it can trivialize, it can fragment, although she argues that these things don't actually happen, um, our relationship to history. Yeah. Right, to, to what actually happened, to real historic awful events. Um, you can think of uh, plantation tourism, right, where uh, people can go and, uh, and, you know, have supernatural encounters with the ghosts of former slaves. That's really getting into some risky territory That's there, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you want to honor and respect this really awful, awful uh history that we have. Um, and the arguments go, well, it's keeping history alive. And, you know, the arguments go, well, it's trivializing it. I mean, you are, you are especially, you know, and this isn't even getting into whether or not you believe there are actually ghosts yeah. or haunted things at these places, but um, it gets messy. So it's all about uh, what voices are being represented. Uh, and whenever we are memorializing somebody, whenever we're creating any kind of altar, any kind of shrine, um, there's the personal voice, right? The person who has lost somebody, um, that is entering into it. The person who has been lost, um, we're often trying to recapture, reclaim some part of that, um, and that can be very tricky, too. Um, So who speaks for whom uh, is probably one of the biggest parts of this. Um, And in terms of the the bigger uh, ideas of Themester, remembering and forgetting, those again are really tricky. Um, who's allowed to remember? Who's allowed to remember what? Who's allowed to speak? Uh, who says what the memory is? Mm-hmm. What happens to people who remember things differently? Yeah. Um, who's allowed to forget? What do we right? choose to forget? What do we choose to forget? Um, forgetting is a privilege. Uh, you know, not everybody can forget the same sorts of things that have happened. Um, and so I tend to look at that on a much more uh, personal and small group level. But um, these questions very quickly blow up and turn into to bigger things. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, it's true that when you think about, you know, especially the one having to do with slavery and plantations, that is definitely a territory that begins to perhaps marginalize what may have happened because you're not you're not hearing from people who experience that. However, in a larger sense, it is a way to bring these kind of very distant memories of history into the very personal space. And experiencing those for yourself is a way to make them more real and to make them more significant. It's kind of a, a thin line between are we making this more real or are we fictionalizing or making it sort of a performative thing? Right. It's, it's hard. It's a That's hard That's exactly the crux. And yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't have answers yeah. there, but... Um, <laughs> Oh, it's one of the things that I try to do in this class is yeah. to get students to think about it a little bit more. We had some of our – I've taught this class once or twice before, mm-hmm. and uh, we had some very, very productive discussions. Um, we just looked online at the uh, the uh, 9-11 Memorial gift shop. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's a range of things. I mean, you can get snow globes, you can get um, dog collars, you can get T-shirts, you yeah. can get. There was a lot of discussion in class over what things were in good taste, what things were in poor taste, and it made us realize how much context is a part of that, right? Um, who are you getting this for? Yeah. Do you have to go and buy it in person? Can you get it through mail? All of these things changed people's opinions just mm -hmm. in the class over whether or not something was okay or not okay, whether yeah. it's taboo, whether it's something we should stay away from. Um, but you could very quickly start to see other people's points mm -hmm. too. And, and really, I wish I could take it a little bit farther than this, but it's enough for me to have people understand that it's a lot messier than we're often led to believe. Yeah. But um, so you said that you've you've taught this class before. Coming up in the fall, is there something new that you're exploring? Something new you're trying that you're especially excited for, perhaps, or just something that you're trying to talk about again? <laughs> well, I'm always uh, always really interested. And I, I, I kind of said this. I'm really interested in. Um, what students' experiences are with yeah. this stuff online. Um, not just in online, but, but very much online. Um, but I always have the students do uh, group research projects, and uh, they come up with such interesting things mm -hmm. coming from so many different... So I'm always very interested in that. I've had students write about... Uh, uh, rhetoric used in uh, anti-gun speeches in the wake of some school shootings. I've had students just go around town and document uh, roadside crosses, memorial trees, mm -hmm. um, finding all kinds of different ways that our lives are, are always touching on these things that mm -hmm. we, we don't always think about. Um, but yeah, so I'm... <laughs> And, and this is maybe a little selfish of me, too. I'm, I'm very much interested in uh, – I'm still – the most recent uh, that I am is, is probably Instagram. I've been looking at Instagram memorials. So I want to know what people are actually using, mm -hmm. what people are doing, uh, how they encounter death and, yeah. and memory. Not even death. I mean, it doesn't always have to be death and life. Just, um, you know, I open it up to – to memory yeah. in general. How do we structure our lives? So we like to think a lot about how uh, the different formats, the platforms of the various um, social networking sites we use, how they constrict us, what sorts of things they allow. I mean, there are only, only so many ways that you can present yourself on, on Instagram, mm -hmm. right? Um, there are only so many options, only so many filters. Uh, how do we cut through that? What does that do to our memory? Uh, what does that do to our, our level of interaction with people? Mm -hmm. um, how do we avoid sterilizing it and making it real, you know, while, yeah, while or, maintaining a facade of, you know, having it together? Right. Or is that even still a worry? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as somebody who's pushing 40, that strikes me as a very, very important worry. But then, yeah. you know, I, I talk to students all the time who, who navigate it so smoothly that it makes me wonder maybe yeah. – Maybe I'm looking at it wrong. So mm. that's <laughs> really what I'm interested in is yeah. seeing what the students are doing, what they can teach me. I mean, it's, it's interesting as, to as think about. As cliched as that sounds. No, yeah. yeah. It's interesting to think about grief as forever changing, and especially with the Internet. I mean, it is changing all around us. But, um, yeah, it's very interesting. I think a lot of people aren't open to having these kind of conversations because they are uncomfortable. But I think it's an important way to contextualize how we live with memory, how memory exists in physical ways right beside us. And I think that's what makes it really intriguing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Some might believe there is a prescribed method of grieving. The fancy casket, massive flower arrangements, and somber tombstone are often treated as the official way. But this conversation illustrated the reality that there are unending ways in which we keep someone's memory alive. A tattoo a Facebook page, and even a vinyl record can all be employed for the purpose 
of memorialization? It's a question we all have to grapple with, no matter how uncomfortable it might be. How do we want to be remembered? Remembering and Forgetting is a podcast produced for Themester at IU. Special thanks to IU's College of Arts and Sciences, Tracy B., Ken Smith, and The Media School for today's episode. Music for this episode by Jack Brown. For more discussions on memories surrounding marking our nation's landscapes, the effects of stress on memory, and more, check out the rest of Remembering and Forgetting. Thank you for listening.